0: Good morning again. This is um, our last week in the book of Song of Solomon. If you've been with us uh, for this last spring, we've been in this book for the last seven weeks. This is our eighth. And as one more person told me recently, it's been kind of a strange series. Um, We've been talking a lot about love, about sexuality, about uh, intimacy and relationships, and since this book is a poem, it's actually somewhat repetitive. It repeats itself quite often. And if you've been here and heard every sermon over the last seven weeks, you've probably heard some similar themes, meaning it might, have, it might seem a little repetitive to you. It, I think it might seem a little repetitive to those of us who've been preaching it. But I actually think that's so good. Relationships, love, these themes are huge in our lives, right? This is And we need repetition, we hear, in order to help things sink in. And so if you feel like things have been a little repetitive, they probably have, but this has been an important part of our sermon series in this book. So next week we will start a new one. It's called Summer Shorts, unofficially, which unfortunately doesn't refer to shorts, although I'm wishing it did because it's warm in here. And uh, it would be nice to wear shorts all summer, and maybe I will. But this is a reference to short books of the Bible. In the Old Testament, especially, we're going to actually be looking at a different book every week. So it will be the opposite of what we've done the last eight weeks, and we'll be in a new book every week for the summer. And it should be a lot of fun. We'll start next week with the book of Jonah. Um, but today, we're going to look at the final chapter of Song of Solomon. We're going to see in this chapter that it's kind of a look back at this love story that the, ch- that the book's been telling, And the woman in this love story is the one speaking, and she's sort of reminiscing about the love that they have shared and do share. And so we're going to see if we can learn a little bit more from her on the love that they have and what that power of that love is. And we're going to examine the nature of love from some different angles than we've looked at so far. But before we kind of dive into that, there's a couple things I want to pray for uh, outside of our study this morning. One, our senior pastor, or lead pastor for Northeast, Jack Brace, and my husband, Matt, and a few others from our community uh, are on this bike ride across the state today, and they are finishing today in Spokane, and so we're going to pray for them as they finish. They've raised over $100,000 for world relief to support refugees in the city, which is awesome. <laughs> totally. And, uh, and they are finishing up this ride today. So it has been hot, as you can imagine, and it has been uh, long. So I, I hope that today feels like a triumph for them. The other thing I would like to lift up in prayer is the shooting that happened at Brettler Place right down the street from us um, where Charlene Lyles was killed. We want to lift her family up in prayer. We want to lift that community up in prayer. Um, pretty hard stuff. So we'll pray for them as well. And then we will dive into our text this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being present with us this morning, God. We feel you in, in this warm heat and in the slight breeze blowing through, God. We know that you are with us. You're present and you are making yourself known. God, would you make yourself known today in our midst as we study your word? Would you help us to understand more about who you are? God, we thank you for those in our community who have said yes to this big ride across the state. We ask that you'd bless them as they finish today, that, God, you would protect them from any heat exhaustion, from any other illness, and that they would all make it to Spokane today. And really, God, feel your pleasure at their using their gifts for your glory. And then, God, we also remember the tragedy in our community that happened this past week. God, we are mourning would, we, would you help us lament and mourn with that family? Would their pain be our pain, God? And then would we cry out to you for justice? God, you are a just and loving God. And so we ask that you'd show us how we can be your agents of justice and love in this community. And we pray for comfort for the family who grieves today, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right now about love. We are, uh, like I said, we've been studying a lot about this love story these last weeks, and it's made me reminisce a little bit about falling in love with Matt. And so I want to tell you that story. Uh, when Matt and I first started dating, he's, that's my husband, uh, he and I actually were both in seminary. I was in my se- just starting my second year of seminary. He was just starting his first year I was also at the time just starting an unpaid internship at Bethany, I was starting, I was working full-time or almost full-time as an accountant, and I was a full-time student. In other words, of all the times in my life, this was the least opportune time to be trying to start to date someone. And I could, I mean, I could barely keep up with the few friends I had outside of school, and here's this cute guy, and he has fixed my bike for me, and he is in love with life, and he and I love all these same things, and Even though I'm a really practical person most of the time and I know I have very little bandwidth for a relationship, all of a sudden, all my free time seems like it should be spent with this guy. And so we start dating, which usually means going on dates at 9 o'clock at night after class gets out. And then after we've hung out with friends from class for an hour or so, we'd go back to one of our places and study for the next three or four hours. So it's like 2 a.m. And then I'd get up at 7 a.m. the next morning to start the next 12-hour day. And I'm a person who loves sleep, so this is crazy that I'm doing this. And I also had this nervous, like, excited ball of energy in my stomach all the time. I could eat a few bites of food and feel full because I was so enamored of Matt and and what was going on. And uh, this went on for, like, three or four months. This, like, very little sleep, not very much eating... And then uh, my body sort of raises a white flag and I'm diagnosed with pneumonia. And I had to stop the sleepless nights and the uh, 2 a.m. study sessions and all of that. But for me, this was what falling in love was like. It was as powerful as being drugged. In fact, I've heard this phase of a relationship be called love crack, which I hope I can say here. But it's like this experience of being on a drug, right? And love, at least in the way that we define it in our culture, can have an almost scary power over us, right? It can make us do crazy, stupid things. There's a reason we call the beginning of a romantic relationship falling in love as if it's something happening to you, right? And love, and not just romantic love, actually, can overtake our practical, logical, wise selves and cause us to scream in anger. It can cause us to make fools of ourselves in these lavish, foolish gestures. It can cause us to ignore our own needs for far too long, actually. It can cause us more pain than any physical wound. And I share this because as I was reflecting on this passage, I'll be honest, actually, this, if you read all the way through chapter eight, it it can feel a little bit like it's just random, random pieces thrown together of poetry. And that's hard for me because I like things to have a linear flow and a connection. And so I tried and tried to sort of see the thread of connection through this chapter. And I realized, finally, the woman, I believe, is just talking about their love over and over again. And she's talking about a longing to express her love. She's talking about remembering when they first fell in love. And how that love has become unbreakable and so strong. And I think... For us, especially week eight of this series, this word love is well-worn, if not overused. We use it in so many ways. It's a feeling, it's an action, right? It's describing how we feel about Skittles and how we feel about God. It's a pretty big range. But there's some things about love that are still mysterious to us and I think uncomfortable for us, even though we use the word all the time. And I think if we don't talk about this side of love, the side that maybe scares us a little bit then we miss out on the ability to understand who our god really is and who we are so that's kind of what we're doing this morning we're going to look at this i called the sermon the darker side of love that might not be the right word but the the underbelly of love the part that we don't look at a lot and i think we'll see that the woman in this passage speaks to three attributes of love that can be difficult for us one that love longs for expression and it can't be hidden forever. Two, love is jealous, and it's unwavering, and it can't be controlled easily. And then three, that love must be freely given. It has to be free. It can't be earned, and it can't be bought. We're going to look at those and why those make us uncomfortable. And so first, if you look at those first verses that Libby read of this chapter, She says a pretty crazy thing to start this chapter off. She says, if only you were my brother, then I could kiss you in public, right? I could bring you home with me. We could make love in my mother's bedroom. I think that's what she's saying. If you were only embracing me right now, love. Okay, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever wished that my husband was my brother. But love does crazy things. And she, this woman, is so longing to be able to express her love to this man that she is wishing they were related so that they could do it without judgment. What is it about love that makes us want to show it physically, to shout it from rooftops, to tell everyone we know exactly how we're feeling? To deeply love someone or something requires that we show, show people, that we show them, that we tell them. We cannot keep it inside. At least not forever. And I believe this is actually what happens when God creates us. The first verses of the Bible, in the beginning, God creates. We believe God doesn't just create, right, for no reason. He doesn't create out of boredom. But he creates as an expression of the perfect love he has to pour out to us. And throughout this study this morning, we're going to be looking at the character of God as love. First John 4, 8, we're going to look at that verse in a minute, but it says God is love, famously. And God m- expresses that love in our history, in creation first, in forming beings in his image, that we could experience the love God knows with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so God expresses his love through forming humanity, breathing his Spirit into our lungs, and then gives us a world to live in. But we, as humans, don't experience that love of God perfectly, right? This is what happens in the fall. We turn against him, failing to believe that God actually fully loves us. And then we continue a long journey of God trying to express his love for us, and thus kind of failing to see it, right? Missing it. God creates Israel, seeking to show the world his love for through this nation, and God gives Israel then prophets and kings and judges to try and help them understand how much he loves them. And then finally, God comes himself and Jesus in the flesh. And 1 John 4, where this God is love phrase comes from, has a beautiful description of what God's doing here. So I want to read that for us. If you have your Bibles, maybe pull them out to 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for sins. That is a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about, where God expresses his love by becoming himself, a man, a person in this world, by coming as the son of God, because love has to express itself, himself, right? Physically, verbally, sometimes in grand, foolish gestures, and I would argue that God entering our universe as a helpless baby is a grand, foolish gesture, in, our, in the way we think about it. Him then taking his life here on earth and walking on two feet and limiting himself in so many ways and using his power to touch lepers, to heal bleeding women, right? To then finally take his two feet and carry two pieces of wood that will kill him down a dusty road. This is our God, and their grand, foolish gestures to show us that he loves us with reckless abandon. And so I wanna think for a second about how this actually makes us uncomfortable. Maybe not this story that I just told because we're so familiar with it, but the expression of love in big ways can make us feel uncomfortable. We see two people kissing in public and what maybe runs through your head or what do you say to your friend? Get a room, right? Get a room. We see two people holding hands, and immediately we make judgments about what their relationship might be. Even though holding hands is a completely non-sexual way of expressing love, we only do that with, like, the most intimate relationship in our culture, right? There is a picture that went viral on Facebook recently of a, ma- of a dad holding a son in the shower. He was sick. And to me, and I don't know all the details but it was a beautiful picture of love and intimacy and people protesting taking it down because they're uncomfortable they're they're naked that's uncomfortable although nothing is showing we are uncomfortable with love that is expressed publicly and it's not just human love actually that we're uncomfortable with I think we're uncomfortable with expressions of love for God that are outside of our our norms In worship, which is our expression of love for God in many ways, and especially in Bethany and in our white culture, particularly, uh, we don't feel real comfortable with bodily expressions of love. So part of the reason we sing every week, right, is to do this, is to worship our God together. But we have a lot of unspoken social norms in this room about what that looks like. You can sing, but not too loud, right? Right? And you can maybe raise a hand in worship, but two hands is a little, it's going to make me a little uncomfortable if you raise both your hands. Not me, well, maybe me, personally. You can sway a little, but you can't dance in worship, right? And when you pray, you can bow your head, you can fold your hands, you can even maybe lean over in your chair, but getting on your knees, prostrating yourself, whoa, I don't know about that, Right? We have, un- we have these norms around us where we get uncomfortable if people express their love in too open, open of ways. Uh, this made me think of when I am out running. So I don't usually have the urge to raise my hands in worship or prostrate myself, but when I'm out running, I often listen to worship music. And It's usually a run-walk. I confessed to that last month when I preached. But uh, I will finish my run-walk and I will have these endorphins from exercising, I'm listening to worship music, the sun's on my face, the wind's in my hair, and I am feeling this tremendous love for God. And what I wanna do in that moment is really stretch out my hands and belt out the song that's in my earbuds at the top of my lungs. But of course, I can't do that. Like, people would stare. People would think I'm crazy, right? And yet that's the urge. So usually I, I settle for like a little stretch and then I go back to my run. <laughs> but I want to, my body wants to express what I'm feeling inside. Like it's a strong urge. This is what love can do to us. It literally makes us want to express it. And we, I think, as a people of God, are called to let our bodies express love. In appropriate ways, yes. Yes. My challenge for us today, though, is to remember that we have a God who loves us with reckless abandon, who would do anything, move mountains, literally, to show us that love. And he's inviting us to do that for each other and back to him, to respond to him that way. And so my question for us is, what does it look like to do that? To allow love to be more expressive in our lives for each other, for God. We could be a people who are unafraid to express our love. And it could speak volumes to the people in our community. So, that's the first thing that makes us sort of uncomfortable about this thing, this word, love. The second is uh, trickier, actually. And actually, I'm still not quite sure I've got this correct in, as I share this with you. So, I give you that caveat this morning. But we're going to talk about love as jealous. The next verses we see in Song of Solomon 8... Uh, we see the woman talking about how, first, of course, she could, wishes she could express her love more fully. And then, beginning in verse six, she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy as undu- enduring as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame, many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. So she's talking about the strength of their love. And keep in mind, it's poetry, and she is commenting on this power of love as she's experienced it. And what she says about love is beautiful, and I think it's a little terrifying, if we stop and think about it. That love is jealous as the grave, that it's unstoppable as death, is what she's saying. And this brings us to the second truth that I think we'd prefer not to think about, about love. Love is jealous. It cannot be easily stopped or controlled. Now, jealousy is a sticky subject I mentioned, but I want us to look at it because at several points in scripture, God is described as a jealous God, right? And God even describes himself this way a few times. It's in the the Ten Commandments as God gives it, and then in Exodus 34, verse 14, Moses tells the people of Israel, you must worship no other gods, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. I get uncomfortable with that, to be honest. When I first read it, God's name is jealous. Since when? I I was thinking about how we list names for God a lot. We list God as Father, Redeemer, God as, right? I mean, we have many names, Emmanuel, Almighty. We don't list jealous very often in that list. And I think we see jealousy as petty, as suspicious, as untrusting behavior, That. It can be caused for real relational problems in our midst, of course. Domestic abuse is often a result of jealousy. It's controlling behavior. It destroys relationships, we've seen. So how do we understand our God as a jealous God? Our God who is love? It helps to first look a little bit at the words used. The Hebrew word in nearly every instance where God is described as jealous is kana, with a Q. And this word is used only in reference to God's character, never to humans, and it means the jealousy of God as, bearing, as not bearing any rival, one who will not bear a departure from himself. Meanwhile, the words for jealousy in relation to human beings are a lot more varied, so they can mean passion and zeal. They can also mean envy and what we more often think of as jealousy as the way we use it in our culture. So I would argue that kana jealousy and envy jealousy are two different things, although they can be confused. And the jealousy that leads towards envy, the one that we are used to, is more about me. It's about I am insecure in who I am, and so I'm wishing I had something else. That's the jealousy we experience in our culture. If I envy another woman, it's about me. If I envy the affection my husband gives his fishing habit, it's about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I need. And that is not love. It's about selfish ambition. It's a lack of understanding of who I am rooted in Christ. And so if I'm jealous in a way, and follow me here, that's rooted in love, it means I'm not thinking about myself. This is an easy way to check. If I'm thinking of what another person needs, as a spouse, you, I think, can be jealous for your wife to come home and be present with you and your family because it's what she needs not so that you'll feel better not so that you'll feel validated but because it's the best thing for her and for her kids as a parent i think you can be jealous for your kids to be influenced by the right role models not because you're worried you'll look bad right if they hang with the wrong people but because you desire that they live a life to follow god a life that's full and whole And as a friend, I think you can be jealous for a friend who's struggling with alcoholism, who's addicted to something, jealous for them to be whole and healthy, not so that they can meet your needs better, but so that they can find their way back to Christ. This, I think, is how God's jealousy works. God does not need us. He's not flying into a rage because we hurt his feelings when we worship other things, or when we forget him or when we don't trust him he god does sometimes get angry we see in scripture but he gets angry for us it's on our behalf god knows that when we worship money or we worship sex or power we end up empty we hurt other people we hurt ourselves and god is jealous for us it's not that god's insecure in who he is when we ignore him and yet sometimes that's what we think of when we think of jealousy He's not wondering whether he's really worthy of love and worship. He knows who he is. God knows that when we break union with him, our lives will be hollow. We will be enslaved to other gods. We will miss out on the love that we're created for. I'm going to use Hosea as an example of God's jealousy. And this is one of the most difficult books in the Bible for me. It's about a prophet that God calls to marry a prostitute who will, he knows will be unfaithful to him, in order for the prophet to display to Israel what they have done to God. And in the first chapter, we read that the, he, he follows God's instructions and he marries a woman named Gomer, and then she bears two sons. And the point being that Hosea can't actually know if they're his sons or not. And God has them name these kids... The first kid, he has them named Lo-Rumaha, meaning not loved. And the second son, he has them named Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. I mentioned this is a difficult book. God is trying to communicate to Israel the depths of their departure from him, how far they've gone. He's telling them through Hosea, you have named yourselves this. You have said, I am not loved. You have said, we are not God's people. And you've been trying to find love and identity everywhere except in me. And the book is full of this kind of thing. God's showing Israel how far she's strayed, showing her the consequences of what she's done, and then promising that he still loves his people. In chapter 2, and this actually brought me to tears as I was reading this book, God has Hosea speak to Israel about all the consequences of their worship of other gods. And then he says... But now I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. In that day, you will call me husband, not master. I will plant Israel for myself in the land, and I will show my love to the one I called not loved. And I will say to those called not my people that you are my people, and they will say you are my God. This is a beautiful, if disturbing, picture actually. When jealousy is rooted in love, it's a jealousy that says, hey, you are calling yourself not loved, but I want you to know that I love you. You're calling yourself not mine, but I want you to know you're mine, no matter what you do. This is how God's love works towards us, constantly wooing us back to him, alluring us to believe that we are cherished the way a bride is cherished on her wedding day. And of course, there are many ways we've perverted this. We've perverted jealousy. It's become a way we control people. It's become a way we let fiery rage burn within us and turn us to abuse. We see it perverted into stalking and suspicion. But this is not love. Love is for another. It's not about me. It can be difficult for us to understand, I think, where that line is between God's jealousy and what our society and envy jealousy have become. One uh, illustration of this, and I struggled whether I would share this, but I'm going to share it. Law and Order, SVU, uh, is one of the shows I sometimes see at the gym when I'm there and it's raining outside. And I'll hop on a treadmill and I this is one of the shows I look for, and I've kind of been confessing that to you, but the episode I saw shows just recently, like a week ago, shows a girl who's assaulted, which is like every SBU episode, but then the father of this girl kind of flies into a rage, and he goes after the man that he thought is responsible, and the, the man he thinks is responsible, the father ends up killing, sort of inadvertently, but the man dies. And then we find out afterwards that the man didn't kill this girl. Okay, it's a fictional show. But it was interesting to watch the way they treated that happening. So the different characters on the show sort of excuse the father for what he did when it was the man responsible. And then when the man is no longer found to be responsible, of course, they turn on the father and say, well, what you did was wrong. Of course, what he did was wrong. We have a way of thinking, oh, the act of passion and jealousy is excusable. But in fact, the father in that story was ruled by hate, not love, right? And that's kind of where we can see what this line is. If our actions are ruled by love, then we are acting in the jealousy of God. And if they're ruled by hate, then we're acting, or this other selfish ambition, then we're acting outside of that love. And we are no longer acting in the godly, kana kind of jealousy. I hopefully, hopefully that was helpful. <laughs> but they're closely related, right? And as we seek to love others, I hope this is our check. Are we filled with passion for another person's good? Are we acting our, for our own interests, right? Do we say something to our friend who's struggling with addiction? Do we speak up when our wife is maybe disparaging her body? Do I act when my child is struggling to find their identity, seeking love in the wrong places? Love is not just kind words. It's not just gentle caresses. We actually need this jealousy, this passion, this fire in us as part of our full experience of what love is. If that fire is fire of love, it will act for other people, not for ourselves. And the woman in Song of Solomon is reminiscing about how powerful love has been for her, and she's not afraid of it, she's embracing it. And we're not quite done, we're almost done. I know it is warm in here, everyone. But she's not quite done, the last attribute of love we'll examine today has to do with its freedom. And this is probably the most familiar idea to us, it is probably the one that makes us feel least uncomfortable on the surface. So she says, um, if someone tried to offer for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. And then in verse 11, she shows us how Solomon, in fact, tried. He tried to buy her, tried to buy her love. Throughout the series, we've been reading this text through the lens that this woman is in Solomon's harem, and so she's one of his wives or concubines, we don't know, but yet she loves and is, in fact, married to a man outside of that, most likely in secret. And so the passage is showing us the way she despises how women are bought and sold. This is where this vineyard analogy came in. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He entrusted the vineyard to keepers, and each was to pay him a thousand pieces of silver in exchange for the fruit. But my vineyard, my own, is, my, is for myself. It's mine to give. You, O Solomon, can keep your thousands. She's saying, you've paid for me, but my love is mine to give. You can't buy it. And this concept that love can't be bought is probably really familiar to all of us. I had the Can't Buy Me Love song running through my head from the Beatles this past week. And We know this, right? There's lots of songs about it. And yet I'd argue that practically speaking, we actually are trying to do it all the time. We're trying to buy love. We're trying to earn love. I grew up in a wealthy suburb of Portland one of the wealthiest, Lake Oswego, Oregon. And my family was not poor by any means, but we were on the low end of the spectrum for Lake Oswego. And I vividly remember being in high school and being very aware of the clothes everyone wore, and particularly North Face fleece jackets. Super in. Everyone had one. Of course, in the Northwest, right? But to me, everyone who was anyone had a North Face fleece jacket. And it was like one type specifically. And to be liked, to be accepted, I needed one of those jackets. I knew it, I knew that would help, right? But of course they cost like $150 and my parents, understandably, did not think that was a very wise way to spend money. And they are right. But I hated not having one. Finally, I think my junior year, I got one for Christmas that was like last year's model and lavender pastel color because it was on sale, right? And I remember getting it and being torn between being grateful and being like, yeah, this is just not, it's not gonna work. This isn't the right, right kind, it's just not quite it. Ridiculous, I know, this is a ridiculous story. We probably all have one, maybe. I look back and think of course it didn't matter what clothes I wore, but we have a tendency to think that if we look the right way, if we wear the right clothes, if we lose enough weight, if we are funny enough, if we're wealthy enough, We'll find what we're looking for. We'll find love. We'll find acceptance. We'll be okay. And we think we know that we can't buy this love, but many of us are are trying to earn it all the time, and we're trying to earn it from anyone or someone specifically. And this is, I think, why it is so hard to accept God's love for us. In the way that he offers it. Because we're so used to operating this way. We're so used to earning love from people. Or thinking that we are. That we try to earn God's love. We try to come to worship and say, I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to do this. So I'm going to come to worship. I'm supposed to serve at the community meal. Because that's what God wants from me. We never say no to anything, some of us. Because God wants us to be involved with our church and our neighbors and to serve and to work hard and to make sure our kids are well-fed and we're eating organic and we're working out every day and we do it all. And we're exhausted. And we're still doing it. And why? Because we can't get it through our heads that God will love us just as much if we did none of it. This weekend, I have been intentionally trying to not do, to just be, and it's super hard for me, to be with God, to be without being tied to what I'm doing. Paul has a tiny little three-chapter letter to Titus in the Bible, and it has this great verse in the third chapter, the last chapter. For we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. This is the love God has for us. It is not tied to anything we do. And it's because it's who God is. And it's because he's created us to be loved. And so he's doing it, no matter what we're doing. And as parents and as friends and as spouses, we get to offer that kind of love outward to each other too. To love people well because of who we are and not because of what they do. We can offer a love that can't be earned, that can't be rooted in performance or in money or in obligation, but it's rooted in who we are. And we are loved beyond belief, actually. And so we can offer that to other people. And it doesn't mean it's free of consequences. It doesn't mean we allow abuse to go on. In fact, it means the opposite. Coming back to that jealousy piece, we can love people so much we won't allow them to do harm to ourselves or to to themselves. And so we hold them accountable, but we don't love them less. And we can communicate that in our relationships. And so we're going to conclude this book of Song of Solomon now. And I want us, as we respond this morning, to point us back to that first point, that we are to be expressing God's love back to God and to one another in uninhibited ways, what would it look like for us to just let go of those inhibitions and express love more fully today in worship as we sing and as we go out these doors and as we love one another well? That's my challenge for us this morning. Let's pray and continue in worship. God, thank you for this book that we have of Song of Solomon in our scriptures. Thank you, God, that it has shown us so much about the love you have for us, that we are beloved. God, would you help that message to sink in for us today? And would we not be afraid of the love you have for us or the love you've given us for other people? God, would we live as people who love out loud in our communities, God, without fear? Would you help us to show love well? And be a people who love big. In Jesus' name, amen.